Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. Thank you and welcome to Financially Ever After. We come to you every other week with great information you need to know to make smart financial decisions about your money. You can go from financially really unaware to financially savvy just by tuning in every other week. And why is this important? Well, because the decisions you make now during the divorce process are going to impact you and your family for the rest of your life. So it's important to take your time. It's important to educate yourself. And we have a great expert here today that's going to help us do just that. So I would love to welcome Adria Hillman, who is one of the most respected matrimonial attorneys here in the New York area. And she comes to us from New York University School of Law. And she became a partner in Green and Hillman back in 1976, where she concentrated on commercial copyright defamation, as well as divorce litigation. In 1991, she went into practice on her own, and she's known for complexity. So tough cases, cases with complex divorce, difficult custody issues, um, works with a lot of very well-known or celebrity clients as well. And she's conducted trials both with custody and financial issues and also done extensive appellate court in these areas. Since starting her own firm, She's also been a founding member of the New York Women's Foundation, which I want to hear more about that because you and I have connected so much in our advocacy and our support for for women. Um, And she also was appointed to the New York State Legislative Advisory Committee concerning estate power and trust law. So we're going to be, don't worry, jumping into some estate planning things you need to think about uh, with getting married through your marriage as well as divorce. Um, and also part of a New York City task force on family violence and a governor's task force on sexual harassment. You are, as I mentioned, very, very well respected and has a uh, Martindale Hubble AV rating for the past 20 years and has been named as a super lawyer, a super lawyer every single year since 2007. And I love this. Your fun fact is that you earned money as a go-go dancer in college. Tell me about that. That's Well, I came from a lower middle class family and I went on scholarship to Bennington College after three years of high school. So I left high school without graduating. And I, during college, had to earn money. My parents really couldn't afford to both support me 
and uh, and support the household. So I took jobs during college, and one of those jobs was a go-go dancer at a club in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which was not too far away from Bennington College. Of course, this job was somewhat short-lived because uh, I think the second, may have even been the first night that I danced, and I danced on top of a bar uh, <laughs> in a, in a miniskirt, um, two men got into a fight and uh, they decided that this was probably not a good arena for a go-go dancer and I left and got paid I think $50 which was a lot of money in those days Yeah, and that was the end of my go-go dancing days. <laughs> okay, so tell me that how did you go from there into matrimonial law? Uh, well, well and, and you had commercial and copyright right. too, but how did you know that this was the right fit for you? Well, I didn't really. I, uh, first of all, I came to law, I come from a family of women. I have two older sisters. One is a doctor and one is a clinical psychologist. We all left high school after three years. We all went to Bennington College. We all graduated Bennington College in three years. And we all went to NYU graduate school. And so other than being an accountant, there weren't many professions left for me. And I wanted to be in a profession in which I could help one person at a time. And I, during college, I took a course in constitutional law with the person who was then president, Ed Blaustein, and he recommended that I go to law school. So that's how I ended up in law school. And after law school, I wanted to work for a woman. I did not want to work in a big firm. I interviewed with three women. And I took a job with one of them named Shirley Fingerhood, and she was of counsel to the man who I ultimately became partners with. She went on to become a judge. I stayed with him in those days, and we're talking in the 70s. Uh, you did, I did everything. I was in general practice. I defined myself by what I didn't do, which was mm -hmm. criminal law, bankruptcy, negligence, and tax. But other than immigration, other than that, I did commercial work, I did federal and state litigation, I did copyright, I did libel, I did a lot of libel cases, I became famous for that. And so I had always done some divorce litigation. My firm represented Jackie Gleason in his divorce, which was a very important divorce yeah. in New York State. And so I'd always done some divorce litigation. Then the law changed in New York, and we went from being a title state to being an equitable distribution state. And I, along with a woman named Harriet Cohn, who's also okay. a divorce lawyer, did a study on the impact of the changes in the law on women. And from there, I sort of morphed into doing more and more divorce work. A lot of the entertainment work, libel and copyright, went to the West Coast. And so that became more of the lion's share of my practice. I still did some trust and estates work, but I some got involved in doing a lot of different divorces. Harriet and I also wrote a couple of op-ed pieces in the New York Times on the impact of divorce, on, uh, you know, different aspects of life insurance and divorce. So we were kind of a writing team at that point. I also edited some articles and some books on the impact on women on the changes in the law. So that became the area of practice. Then my partner retired and I ended up on my own, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is not that unusual for divorce lawyers in New York. Many divorce lawyers in New York are in solo practice or in small firms, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as opposed to big firms, because the problem with a big firm is you're going to have conflicts. You represent somebody and the firm represents their corporation or represents their adversary. So it, it becomes be more difficult. It becomes a more difficult fit. So that's how I ended up in divorce law, which which I loved because, you know, you think your life is dysfunctional and you think your kids are just brats. And then <laughs> you, you go to work every day and you say, you know what, I 
kids are not so bad. My yeah. husband is not so terrible. You know, it puts your, it snaps your life into perspective. And you're helping people no matter how rich, how famous, how successful they are, they can't do this themselves. Yeah. So it's a very satisfying area of the law. And you've really carved out that niche of working with some very wealthy, very successful um, celebrities. Mm -hmm. And was that something that you fell into or has that always been an area that um, has been a, a strong part of your practice? Well, I had done work in the entertainment field. So I was that used to sense. representing entertainers. You talked about Jackie Gleason. Right, and, and, I had, and I represented other entertainers. And so when they got divorced, they came to me for their divorces. I had done their copyright work. I had done some of their contract work. So it was a natural segue from that into their divorce. And the important thing I think you have to represent, no matter how rich or famous or successful the person is, you have to be able to say to them, no when what they want to propose doesn't make sense to you mm -hmm. and walk out. Yeah. You are not their slave. You're not you're not their yes person. You're there to give them a good sounding board for what ideas they can and cannot incorporate into mm -hmm. their into their divorce. Because divorces are very personal, right? Mm -hmm. They are not uh, corporate takeovers. They're not IPOs. They have a whole personal quality that is something that is is very hard to understand unless you're in the midst of it. So I'm going to ask a question that I know every woman is thinking on listening to this podcast. Are there big differences between working on a, a celebrity divorce versus just you know, a, a typical divorce with more middle class. Um, well, your options when mm -hmm. there's a lot of money mm -hmm. are substantially greater. Yeah, you can you can apply more creativity where there's very little money. The the options become slimmer and slimmer. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can't negotiate one asset for another when there are only two assets. And it's also much more difficult uh, now representing sometimes representing people of modest means are is much more costly for the lawyer than representing people of substantial means because substantial means there's plenty to divide and people are mm -hmm. are willing to do that at some level so it becomes an easier um, case to settle yeah sometimes yeah. Uh, however, when you represent celebrities, you have to deal with celebrity personalities and, and the neediness of those people, which can be far outstrip what their ordinary demands should be. So that you have to bear that in mind, that it requires a lot of attentiveness, a lot of patience. Uh, a lot of divorce law is listening. Mm -hmm. and being able to strategize with your clients successfully in a collaborative method to make their process end as expeditiously and as amicably as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that courts are a last resort, not a yeah. first resort for most people, because you go into a court system and all of a sudden you and your client are one third or one fourth of the process at three or four times the cost. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're negotiating with a lawyer on the other side, you're, you've got two sides, your mm -hmm. side and the other side. So you're in a, you have much more control over the process and the outcome than you do in litigation. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to recognize that people always come to you and say, oh, I want to go to court. I want to, I want the truth will out, you know, these are all ideas that come from watching, you know, courts on TV. 
Mm-hmm. But the reality is that you're much better off in an amicable private process that you can control with your lawyer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I've also just fallen in love about you is that you are so committed to empowering women for women to get their hands around the financials absolutely to understand and did this come back from and i'm just throwing this out there but seeing such strong women in your life and also your involvement with the um, New York Women's Foundation. Did, did this all, and in, in seeing um, how knowledge can really bridge so much of a gap, did that, is that what has led you down this path? Or I, I just, I think it's phenomenal because you've given so much of yourself, <laughs> um, you know, so many volunteers hours also to the Women's Foundation and, and even just counseling mm-hmm. women. Well, I think that you know, my first financial memory, because you had asked that, was uh, my mother set up a savings account for me when I was maybe four or five years old. And we would go to Dime Savings Bank in Staten Island. Mm-hmm. And I had a little blue I remember pass- Dime Savings. And I had a little blue passbook. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. every and week I could go in and I could enter my amount that I was depositing, whether it was $1 or $5. And the next time I could go in and see the interest earned on it. Well, this was very exciting to me. I remember loving my passbook. It was like one of my cherished possessions as a child. Sadly, children can't have passbooks anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so that started. And my mother was a frustrated professional. So she wanted us all to be married with children, but independent. She wanted us to be able to say we had independent professional lives and we didn't have to count on men to support us. Mm-hmm. So it was very important to her. And that got transmitted to me very early. And that's very avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Because that was in the 50s, I imagine. That's right. So she was really a a mover and a shaker. Right. Well, she was a frustrated professional. She was valedictorian when she was 15. She was sent away to University of Pittsburgh, and she had to leave when she was 16 and come back and take care of her six siblings. So she never got to finish college. So from her perspective, it was very important that her three girls not mirror her experience. Mm -hmm. So I definitely had that. And in terms of feeling that finances and money was very important. When you get involved in divorce, you know, there are three fears that I think women have. Fear of finances, fear of family dissolution and what the family means to them, and fear of the future. Those are the three fears that they have to confront. And the better off you are preliminarily in girding yourself for the process, the better off you're going to be. By that I mean in terms of finances, finding out as much as you can, getting copies of tax returns, understanding if there's been mortgage statements or mortgages, what that looks like, looking at trusts and estate plans, we can talk about that and how important that is, and just understanding how much it costs you to live. I mean, women come to me and they have no idea what it costs them to live. I say, okay, take a little notebook. And for the next month, just write down every time you spend money, what you're spending money on. That's a beginning. Mm -hmm. Just so you can get on top of your own sense of self, what it is that you're doing. Many of them don't pay the bills. Many of them don't understand what the finances look like. And they have a lot of anxiety when it comes to talking about money. 
you know, going over a tax return, explaining it to them, that creates a lot of anxiety for many homemaker spouses. Mm-hmm. Not, not professional women. There's a whole class of women out there who are very equipped to deal with money and finances, but there still is a large a large swath of women in long-term marriages who aren't. Mm-hmm. So fear of finances, fear of family. Women come to me and they're they're terrified of separating their family. They don't want to get divorced because the kids are young and they can't deal with the thought that they're going to be seeing them less than 100% of the time. And what does that mean? And what impact is going to have on the children's mental health? Those are important issues, you know, and then fear of the future. What Mm -hmm. if I'm not married? Who am I? How do I identify myself? Mm -hmm. What What do I become? So I think those are the three fears that really are very important to try to grapple with. I think that every person going through a divorce process should have mental health counseling. Mm -hmm. I don't care how healthy they are. It's a difficult process. It's a process like death. But at the end of the day, your spouse hasn't died. They're just living somewhere else. And but you go through all of those stages of sadness and anger and regret and you know wanting revenge and all of those things that happen to you when someone dies that's close to you happen to you in divorce mm-hmm. you know you also have the situation that you're going through a process it's a long process and you need support going through it which is why mental health help i think is very important i think your children should be able to have guidance a lot of the schools have banana splits but very mm-hmm. often it's important for children to get their own therapist their own person that they can talk to and unload to that's not either of their parents. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important component as well. And getting a financial consultant. So I think that the process does require you to involve people. And these are people you've never had any dealings with probably. Mm -hmm. Therapists, Mm -hmm. financial consultants, lawyers. It's probably your first time really. That's right. Could be your first time and, and that makes it a very difficult a challenge for you to figure out who you should hire and what you want them to do mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how successful they're going to be. It's very, it's, it's very challenging. So what I'm hearing you say is those three fears of fears of finances, fears of family dissolution, and fear of your future, a change in your identity, that with all of these things together, essentially a perfect storm that you need support. And what I'm hearing is some of those professionals definitely mental health not only for you but for your children which i so agree because if you're going through this your children are going to be going through this and the same thing also with the financial of helping you get over that fear of the finances and start to kind of get your your hands both figuratively and you know literally around what's going on with the money and i'd love to talk about that because you have um, some really smart insights to help women protect themselves. And we were talking before and you shared Mm -hmm. four different areas that if you're not looking at going through the divorce, it can spell disaster. And the one that struck out to me most were trusts. Normally you say the word trust and most people, their eyes roll. That's the last thing they want to talk about. Trusts um, can be frightening. And often people um, don't necessarily really understand 
what is the trust, what's its role, what potential could go wrong. Can you give us some essentially horror stories of women who were impacted by a trust gone run wrong that they didn't realize could really hurt their financial future once they decided they were going to either separate or they were going to get a divorce. So very often in young marriages, people will go for estate planning and estate lawyers will recommend, let's put together a trust for the children. And your husband may be starting a business and right at the start of the business, the shares of his business are worth zero. So putting the shares in trust means there's no tax to pay because it doesn't really have too much value. Mm -hmm. And so you put it in trust and you put it in trust for the wife and the children. But Which sounds really good. Sounds good. It's for the family, it's for everyone. And that's what you're told. What could go wrong? The problem is that in all of those trusts, there is language, and these are very often 60-page documents and written in gobbledygook. I mean, mm-hmm. I have trouble understanding them. Greek, I can't, Latin. That's right. I can't imagine a layperson understanding them. One thing you should definitely ask for from your trust lawyer or state lawyer is a memo in plain English of what the trust terms are. But very often, almost invariably, a trust will provide that if there is a physical separation or a legal separation, or a party sues for divorce, the wife is out as a beneficiary, as a trustee, as anything. So she loses all rights, and at the point of divorce, what could be in the trust could be hundreds of millions of dollars. And she's she's, out. And she's out. And most courts will not look at that because that is a trust that was not created for the divorce. It was created for estate planning purposes. What's wrong with that? And so the fact that there has been offloaded into the trust substantial marital assets is to the detriment of the woman. And she's signing this away, thinking that this is a wonderful trust for our family, right? not realizing that she's signing away her protection if god forbid right and i i i i feel like this is so unjust because in those 60 page documents i'm sure it says it somewhere but just like many women don't sign the tax returns i can only imagine they're also not looking at every single uh you know section uh, of these trusts absolutely not i mean i had another situation where my client had gotten a very substantial uh, estate benefit from her ex-father-in-law, and it was in a trust. And she thought, oh, she's going to be great. She's got this great benefit from her ex-father-in-law. But in the back of the trust, it provided that her husband would be the trustee of this trust, and he would determine whether she would ever get income or principal in his discretion. And they were now getting divorced. So the likelihood of his ever agreeing to give her a distribution was slim to none. Mm -hmm. So again, it's in the document, but it's hidden from Mm -hmm. plain view. And unless you are read it to the end and understand every word of it, very often there's something in there that disinherits you or pulls you out of what would otherwise be an entitlement. And Mm -hmm. I see that very often in Mm -hmm. the in the trust category, you know, if you have a state counsel during the marriage, you should ask for a separate interview with the state counsel and ask them very explicitly, 
What happens if my husband dies? What happens if we get divorced? Will I still be a beneficiary? Is what we are doing irrevocable, Mm -hmm. means it can't be changed, or revocable? Those are important questions to ask your trust counsel or estate counsel at the time that these estates and trusts are created, which can be years away from getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you're still happily, happily... Happily married. Happily, happily married. And your husband is telling you this is being done for the benefit of the family. See, we're putting money away for ourselves and our children. Well, who who would ever argue with that? So tell me also about women that you may have worked with were surprised to find out that there was a huge amount of marital debt. How does that happen? Well, very often the debt, well, sometimes the debt is created through the trust, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the spouse loaning money to the trust. We have no idea why this is happening or being loaned money from the trust and this money is going back and forth and it's all under wraps. You don't really know that it's going on. But very often you will have debt that is accrued whether on the house or on a business. And unless you have asked for and looked at a financial statement or a mortgage application, you don't, you're not aware of what that is. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can find out there's 10 or $15 million of debt that was never disclosed and it adversely impacts on you when you go to get a divorce because everybody's looking at marital assets but nobody's thinking about marital liabilities. Yeah, and if you have one, well, guess what? You're taking the asset, you're taking the liability. That's right. And what's interesting about those mortgage statements is often, you know, if you, I almost think of the mortgage statements as um, a peacock trying to attract a mate, putting out all those beautiful feathers. And what you see in those mortgage statements is essentially just that, essentially trying to beef up and sometimes even exaggerate as many assets as you can to be able to qualify, to be able to apply for that mortgage and get the best rate possible. So I imagine that that mortgage statement or that mortgage uh, document for the application can be very powerful of seeing what assets are there. That's right. That's right. And it's very useful. One of the first questions I always ask a client is, did you sign the mortgage application? Did you get a mortgage for your house? What's the name of the bank? Go to the bank and get a copy of the mortgage application. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look because that financial statement, very often you don't have any other financial statement, is a sworn document under penalties of perjury. We've seen Alan Manafort how useful that can be. So having the mortgage application and knowing exactly what was disclosed and what was represented as an asset and as a liability is a very important bottom line, baseline for any woman who's going through a divorce process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she should be signing it. Right? That's right. So making sure that she's the one signing it, that her name is not forged and that That's she right. knows what's going on. Or if she's going. not going to sign that, at least she knows what's on it. Exactly. Right? And has a copy of it. Right. So the other thing that we need to talk about are tax returns. And I feel like as far as things that most women want to put their head in the sand about um, talking about trust that's number one talking about mortgages and and actual mortgage applications um, now we're talking about 
the IRS and we're talking about tax returns. So talk about fears. I think I think we might have the one, two, three fears <laughs> of, of finances all in this one conversation. So I hope everyone who's listening that you're not driving, that you're able to pay attention because I know that we're we're and going to be more afraid. By this. Exactly, and and maybe do some you know some some breathe, deep breathing and some meditation. But these are important things to talk about. So what can go wrong? What can go wrong with a tax return? What can go wrong? There are a lot of things that can go wrong in a tax return. And the important, here's here's an important, again, use of a professional. You have an accountant. He prepares the tax return. It's not just for your husband. It's for you too. You have every right and should go in to see the accountant yourself and say, okay, here's the tax return. Or if you haven't seen it, call him up and say, I'd like to see a copy of the tax return. And for future years, I'd like to actually be able to have it explained to me before I sign it. And in that, you will see income. You might see income on assets you didn't even know existed. You might see um, loans that you didn't know existed from the corporation to your spouse and back again. which are referred to sometimes as advances in tax returns and sometimes not as loans. You might see that your real estate is not being treated as a primary residence, but it's being treated as a commercial property that's being rented out. I mean, there are all kinds of things. Tax returns are gold mines of information if you know what you're looking for. And you cannot be expected to be the person who knows. You go to the accountant who is required to disclose to you and to tell you exactly what it contains Mm -hmm. and to put it in simple English for you. I mean, the accountant is your representative, not just your spouse's. And I feel that so many women don't feel entitled or um, they don't have a relationship or they're worried if they ask a question that it's going to get back to their husband and cause a problem. Um, So as we look at all of these things, I know there's one other hot button that we need to talk about before we move on, and that is credit cards and building your own credit. This is also another area where women are hurt significantly after a divorce. Tell tell us a little bit about the stories that you've seen um, where women didn't realize they didn't have credit. No. They had a credit card with their husband, right. but isn't that enough? No, because no. it's not based right? on their financial wherewithal. They're a secondary holder on their husband's credit card, and it's their husband's credit rating. They don't have a credit rating. So in order to establish a credit rating, you need to have your own credit card or your own debit card, and that's a very important <clears throat> very important for you to establish during the marriage before you get divorced because if at divorce you're first establishing it it would be very difficult at that juncture to apply for a mortgage or uh, even in an application for a job they're going to look to see what your credit rating is are you good at paying your bills and if you have no history it makes you much more uh, vulnerable Mm -hmm. to not being able to to go forward in an economic way. To get your own apartment, to be able to buy something, to even be able to get a cell phone. And what's really scary about it is that you may have a few million dollars in the bank. Right. But that's not going to help your credit rating. Right. And there's that myth that, well, if if I have you know, all these assets that I'm getting from the marriage, of course I'm going to have a good credit rating. They're two completely different things. And just because you have an income and just because you have assets 
it's not going to translate into you being able to even get a cell phone. Right. Um, you know, talk about a difficult situation. And the things I've seen women have to do is prepay a year's worth of rent. Right. I've seen that as a well. A year's worth of rent. And... Um, or get their ex-spouses to guarantee yes. the lease. That's another thing that, that ends up happening because they can't, that the landlord won't accept it. Mm-hmm. So they have to then have their husband, mm-hmm. again, being beholden, right. again, tied right. to to that person. Right. Wow. It's very difficult. We're going through a lot. We've talked um, about some really important things you need to know that could create a financial disaster and making sure you understand the trust that you might have, understand also everything that you need to know about your estate planning, um, getting that mortgage applications, making sure you know all of the the debt of of your marriage, talking about making sure the tax return is, that is uh, something that you understand, that you have a relationship with that accountant, and then finally making sure that you have a credit card. Are there any other hot button issues or things that look very innocent but can spell disaster for well, a woman going through divorce? Well, one of the things connected to trusts and connected to tax returns is very often spouses will ask you to sign a gift tax return, which is separate from an income tax return. And the gifts can be millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. and. You find out that way, if you sign it, that you have, in effect, given away money out of the marital estate to third parties. Now, very often it's to your children, uh, but sometimes it's to other third parties, members of your spouse's family. Parents. Parents. And you have unwittingly given away lots of money that you may, at the moment of divorce, feel that you want it back in the pot, but it's not there. It's Mm -hmm. gone. Especially if you've signed that tax return. That's if you've right. signed the GAF tax return, then essentially yeah. that's your seal of approval. This looks great. Let's give it to your in-laws who never, re- you know, your parents, my in-laws who never liked me anyway. Right. <laughs> um, that's what you're doing. Right. That's what you're doing. Right. Um, that's really powerful and really important. And understanding that, because I, I imagine, and actually I just met with a, a person today who has that same exact situation where $3 million was transferred to purchase a home for uh, his parents. And the title is being held by his parents, not him. It's a gift. And funny enough, it occurred one month before he decided to file for divorce. Now that you might be able to attack as a transfer in contemplation of divorce. Exactly. And would you call that pre-divorce planning? Pre-divorce planning. But things that happened years before, you won't. And the other problem with joint gifts is there is a limitation five and a half million dollars is the limitation now so if you have are deemed to have given five and a half million dollars then you can't give any gifts in the future other than fourteen thousand dollars a year per person but Mm -hmm. you will have used up your unified credit during the marriage unwittingly yeah yeah so a lot to think about yes but but I, I want to encourage the audience not to be more terrified by all of this because you shouldn't be expected to understand any of this. These are kind of hidden secrets, shall we say, that we're just disclosing enough for you to get educated about by hiring accountants, hiring lawyers, looking at these documents and not 
putting your head in the sand, not being, you know, uh, one of those people who says, well, I don't need to look at this. It's being handled by my spouse or it's being handled by so-and-so. You need to take some ownership of these issues if you want to be protected and self-protected going forward. Well, I can't thank you enough. And um, if you can tell our listeners of Financially Ever After, how can they you know, learn a little bit more? Maybe your, your website if you want to share. And uh, I have a website and we're working on that and on my LinkedIn profile. But, uh, you know, I'm always available. I'm a good person to bounce ideas off of for second opinions because I am not a big fan of uh, what I would call poaching clients. Mm -hmm. By that I mean I'm happy to talk to people if they're already represented to give them my sense of how the process is going, whether their lawyer is doing a good job. By and large, I, I suggest people stay with their lawyers unless there really is a tremendous breakdown in communication or tremendous difference of opinion. Because mm -hmm. every time you change, it just makes your process longer and much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So we'll make sure also in the show notes that we have your information. We have your um, your website as well. And I just want to say a great big thank you for taking the time to be here and share your, your expertise and um, also for everything that you do for women. I mean, I, you really you really are a, a wonderful role model. And um, I wanted to give my plug at the end for the Women's Foundation. Yes, okay. please do. So New York Women's Foundation, I helped start it 30 years ago. First year, we gave away $50,000 in a church on the Upper East Side. And now we're giving away $10 million. Part of a growing group of women's philanthropy to work by and for women. We started out and our goals were to be diverse, collaborative, and work with local groups who couldn't get funding, startups, by and for women on what would be considered traditionally women's issues, domestic violence, childcare, healthcare, empowerment, advocacy, immigration issues. That is still our goal. That is still, we still have a very diverse board. We still are working towards uh, helping startup groups. We do it over a three-year period. We used to only be able to do it for one year. And we're very excited that we're now a mid-level foundation, part of a growing group of women's philanthropy around the world, around the country, because women really are going to be extremely rich mm -hmm. in the next 20 years, and we should utilize it in a way that's good for all of us. I agree. And uh, there's a statistic out there by 2022, women will control more dollars than men, which will be the first time in history. And when you talk to other women, it's interesting because we have much more um, compassion to give to others. So you find that a lot of the women who are going through this process, finding their identity, um, part of that identity is giving back. And it might be through volunteering time or getting involved with a charity to be able to give dollars as well. And I love what you do, and I've always respected uh, the New York Women's Foundation. Your work is amazing. So thank you for being here. Not at all. It's been thank a pleasure. You. Thanks, Stacey. And thank you for everyone for tuning in to Financially Ever After, coming to you every other week with great financial information, smart smart money sense for you to make good decisions through your divorce. If you have any questions, if we could support you in any way, please do feel reach out, reach out to me. And you can reach me at www.francisfinancial.com or you can email me, Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y at francisfinancial.com. Thank you for being here, for investing in yourself, and we'll see you in two weeks.